Welcome to Piedmont Arts. I'm Rachel Stewart. The next performances in Charlotte Master Chorale's Legacy Concert Series are coming up September 28th and 30th at the Kane Center in Cornelius and Queen's University in Charlotte, respectively. The theme of the concerts is Freedom and Oppression Across Communities and features the North Carolina premiere of R. Nathaniel Dett's The Ordering of Moses, as well as Bernstein's Chichester Psalms. Dr. Marcus L.A. Garrett is Associate Professor of Choral Studies at the University of North Texas and an expert in the music of Nathaniel Dett, and he will give pre-concert talks at both events. And he joins us today on Piedmont Arts to share some of his knowledge about this important American composer whose music you do hear on WDAV. So welcome to Piedmont Arts, uh, Dr. Garrett. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Well, why don't we just start with some background on R. Nathaniel Dett. Who was he? Where did he come from? When did he live? R. Nathaniel Dett was a composer and educator and pianist and conductor and essayist and poet and some would say kind of a renaissance man. He did it all. And part of it was because he had to. He was born in 1882 in Drummondville, Ontario, which according to scholars is or was a neighborhood in the Niagara Falls region. So if you try to do a a search online for Drummondville, Ontario, you will only find his name and you won't be able to find it on Google Maps or anything like that. But we know that it was in the, um, the Niagara Falls area. And after some study in music in this in the Canada, he finally made his way to the States. He was the first Black graduate to earn a double degree in piano and composition from Oberlin. And after that, he taught at a few historically Black colleges and universities. His longest tenure and the time, the place where he was became famous, we'll say, was at Hampton Institute, now Hampton University, which is where I did my undergraduate studies. And that's why I know about this wonderful, wonderful man. So what is it about Nathaniel Dett that really um, captures your interest and speaks to you? Because you've done a lot of research on Dett um, over the years. Yes, his music first spoke to me when I was singing it as an undergraduate student. We had a concert where half of the repertoire was his music. And the thing that struck me the most was how much fun his music was to sing. And it's not necessarily that the music was fun music, but the fact that it worked so well for the voice. Later was when I was working on my master's degree. I did a little bit of research into him and because I noticed that several of the pieces that I had sung either were spiritual arrangements or they had used folk music, but it was different than the William Dawson spiritual arrangements or Roland Carter or Undine Smith Moore. There was just something different. So that got me on a research dive And that's how I learned that he had written so much about Black music of the time. And he spoke about why he wrote the music the way that he did. And then as a composer myself, I became even more interested to see how he did those certain things in his music. And the more that I saw that, the more I fell in love with it. So you say that he's different from the other composers that you named who are also Black composers. 
can you talk a little bit more about that? What What is different about how he approached using spirituals or folk music in his work? When he wrote about Black music, and he wrote about it many times and in different ways, there was one time that he spoke about a peculiar problem. So in the first part of the 20th century, he realized that there were many Black residents, uh, Black U.S. citizens, who, after they had learned, uh, they got more education, they, as Christians, were going to different denominations that favored anthems and hymns and maybe would do oratorios and cantatas. And he realized that that group of people distanced themselves from spirituals because spirituals were a reminder of a time of enslavement. And people were trying to move past that. They were like, that time is essentially over, even though things were not great necessarily for Black people, but they were better than they had been 50, 60, 100 years prior. So they were trying to just not deal with that anymore and were going to churches that did not use spirituals in worship. So he said that the peculiar problem was, how do we keep this music alive and how do we let them enjoy it if they don't want to do it or listen to it in the more extemporaneous way that people had been accustomed to? So he decided that a way to solve this quote unquote peculiar problem is to combine the folk music with the genres that they are now more appreciative of, or they feel more comfortable with. So he has a piece called Old Holy Savior that uses an existing hymn text, but he uses a melody that he heard uh, that he heard from someone else that was in the folk uh, style. He also wrote anthems that were based on spirituals or motets. And what I found, because he never said specifically what an anthem or motet was based on uh, the research that I did, I gathered that for him, almost every time he called a piece an anthem, it was primarily homophonic. And if he called it a motet, then it had more polyphony. And, but all and of them for the, kind of, just for like the lay people, homophonic means that it's just one one tone or one melody? We think homophonic, we think hymn style, where you have a melody with other parts and everybody is pretty much moving with the same rhythms. So that's when we say it's like the same kind of sound, whereas polyphony, it's you have individual lines that are happening and they all have different rhythms. Sometimes we'll have very different texts happening at the same time. So if you listen to pieces like uh, Deep River, by debt, you will get to to really hear that or his most famous anthem, which is Listen to the Lambs. And actually, if you look at the score, it says a religious characteristic in the form of an anthem. He takes the spiritual Listen to the Lambs, only uses the first three small phrases of it, and it has an ABA form. So the beginning and the end are very similar, but the middle section is 100% original and he uses the text from the book of Isaiah. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd and carry the young lambs in his bosom. So then you see the connection, lambs and lambs and the middle section, he makes a connection to the spiritual. I think it's like a perfect marriage of the folk music and the anthem style with the folk text and a text from the scripture. And so then we, after 
many other pieces. Then we finally get to the the master's thesis, which went through a few variation, which is the ordering of Moses. Right, which I do want to talk about in just a second because that uh, that's getting its North Carolina premiere with the Charlotte Master Chorale uh, programs coming up. But it just occurred to me you were talking about um, his background and um, the sort of emerging, I guess you call it middle class of, of black people and his writing to uh, try and bridge, I guess, the, the changes in the culture. What do you think, If is there any um, influence of his growing up in Canada that has anything to do with how he approached making that shift. Would it have been different if he had grown up in the South? I guess with Hampton Institute, he had a lot of his career in the South, right? Absolutely. And actually, Hampton Institute had a collection of spirituals. So the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he had several ethnomusicologists and composer conductors who wanted to preserve spirituals. And at Hampton, they had a collection. He was the seventh editor, if I'm remembering correctly, of religious folk songs of the Negro as a sung at Hampton Institute, where they listened to the Hampton Institute students sing these folk songs. And th- whoever was collecting it, they would then add um three and in the case of debt sometimes five six seven parts to it but it was used as a hymnal mm. and with with debt's edition he actually decided to pull all of the spirituals together or those religious folk songs as he called them together and group them based on themes so if you look at the table of concerts it says like a hymn, hymns of aspiration hymns of biblical themes hymns of joy those kinds of things back to your original question about whether this would have been the same, like his music would have been the same uh, if he had grown up in the South versus in Canada. He actually said that when he heard his grandmother, who was an enslaved person who made her way to Canada, he actually heard, heard her sing spirituals all the time. But because he was living in Canada and because he had never been enslaved, he did not have the connection to spirituals that she did. Mm. So he basically just listened to her and was like, okay, this is what you're doing. I'm done. And it wasn't until he was in the States. And I believe it was when he was at Oberlin, he heard the Niesel String Quartet perform a Dvorak Quartet. And one of those melodies reminded him of a spiritual. And he said that he heard the sweet, frail voice of his dear departed grandmother come back to him. And then it was there was a rush of emotions. And that's when he was like, oh, maybe I can do the spiritual, yeah, do it in a classic, in a more classical way than we're used to. So I would say that he he needed to to leave mm-hmm. Canada in order to do what he was doing because if he had stayed there, he probably would not have ever had that that maybe necessary disconnect, yeah. That necessary separation, so that he could then have those emotions rush back to him, and then it was a fresh thing. And having learned so much about composition, it's just like, oh, maybe I can do this. Right. That's interesting. Tell us a little bit about the ordering of Moses, which is going to be performed by Charlotte Master Chorale on the twenty eighth and thirtieth. The ordering of Moses is his magnum opus. It is the, the the biggest thing that he wrote. It is a continuous 
choral orchestral work. Many people call it an oratorio, but there's some folks who refer to it as a, as a cantata because it's about 45 to 50 minutes. And so as I have told many of my graduate students, I don't care what you call it as long as you have a definition to back it up. <laughs> so I call it an oratorio because it is uh, uses a large scale orchestra. It has four soloists and there are characters too. And we're not used to characters with cantatas like, like the Bach cantatas. You typically it's with oratorios that we're telling a story. And he actually compiled the libretto himself and he used biblical scriptures he used spiritual texts uh texts from negro spirituals and also uh, some of his own words because like i said he was an essayist and a poet he actually published an album of poetry uh well before his career as a composer really took off and uh, that that combination of texts also manifests itself with the musical inspiration so there are three sources of music for it he uses spirituals, he has his original music, and then he also tries uh, his take at exoticism. Because this is not specifically a story from the States, he's trying to get people's ears in, in another place. But he uses two specific spirituals as the source. One is seen throughout, and it's Go Down Moses. Many people are familiar with that, and you actually hear it in the opening cello line, and he also uses that as the subject of a fugue later on, which is my favorite, favorite part. <laughs> uh, I could go on and on about how he basically follows the rules, but he tricks you. Well, I'll just say it now. So when <laughs> for those people who don't know, a fugue is basically a composer's way of showing off how well they can write and follow certain rules. So you have to have the melody first. And then somebody else does the melody at a different, um, basically almost in a different key, but there's a specific uh, way that they have to do it. And then somebody else comes in with it in the first key, and then somebody else does it in the new one. Well, he delays that final one because it starts with the basses, then you have the tenors, then the altos, and you think the sopranos will then have it, and they don't. So you're just like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> and... He actually delays it 15 to 20 minutes. There, there's all this other stuff that's happening. There's a tenor solo, there's bass, a bass solo, there's other choir stuff. The orchestra does a bunch of stuff. And then finally the sopranos come in. And so he's kind of just, he, he's, for those who know what a fugue is, it's like, uh, oh, you just got to wait. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. And for me, as a person who loves fugues, loves fugues that are in the minor mode, and I love spirituals, when you have a minor mode spiritual used as a fugue subject, I'm just very happy. And the counter subjects that he created are just wonderfully, wonderfully composed, and they're so fun to sing. And at the end of the oratorio, he also uses a lesser known spiritual called He is King of Kings. You get to hear both of those spirituals in there. and But a, almost all of the music is original to, to debt. And he's telling this story of when God called Moses to free his people, the Israelites, after they had been um, enslaved. And it ends in a rather joyful way with Miriam and Moses rejoicing at the end and they get to sing a bunch of high notes and it's it's wonderful 
Oh, and I should say that he he also, because this was when God called Moses, so Moses being younger, he says in the the opening part of the score that he that's the reason why he chose to use a tenor. So that you would think a younger voice versus the baritone bass that is God. So that gives us a really good idea of what to expect uh, in these concerts that are coming up. And as I noted before, they are the uh, North Carolina premiere performances of this work. Is this work not widely known, not widely performed, or have we just been behind the curve here in North Carolina? Well, the interesting thing is that when it was premiered by the May, the Cincinnati May Festival in uh, by the 1937, I believe it was, it was premiered on the radio and there was an interruption in the broadcast. And the announcer came on and said, so sorry, due to technical difficulties, we're not able to continue. So we're going to play some other music. Well, the running theory is that there were actually several angry people who were very upset that music by a Black person was given such prominence on the radio. And so the production was halted. Um, or the, the radio broadcast, they finished up the performance in the hall, but it was just not done that way on the radio. There were several performances after, not, not too long after that. Unfortunately, he passed in eight, um, just a few years after that in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan. But there there were a number of years where it was performed. There was one only one professional recording that was performed by uh, uh, the Tuskegee Institute Choir with the Talladega Orchestra, William Dawson. But after that, it kind of lost its fashion. And it wasn't until the Cincinnati May Festival did it again, maybe 10, 12 years ago, that people kind of started thinking about it again. And then in the last three or four years, as more people have been talking about diversifying their representation of composers, and you've got, I mean, you have uh, symphony choruses or community choruses that will regularly do works with orchestra. They start looking at this and I get happy every time. And whenever somebody says, hey, Marcus, do you want to be a part of this? I'd say, you just tell me when, and if it's free in my schedule, I will be there because I always support performances of our Nathaniel Death music. Well, we're glad that you're available to be on hand uh, September 28th and 30th here in the Charlotte area for, for these premiere performances. So thank you for your time. Um, I've been speaking with Dr. Um, Marcus L.A. Garrett, who is an associate professor of choral studies at the University of North Texas. And uh, he will be giving pre-concert talks uh, before the Charlotte Master Chorale's concerts that are coming up September 28th and 30th at the Kane Center in Cornelius and Queens University in Charlotte. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much. For Piedmont Arts, I'm Rachel Stewart.